You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, good morning. That scared me a little, I'll admit. I don't know if you guys are watching and saw me jump. I think I peed a little. And so, like... I was, it was all quiet, and I was like about to say something. I just turned on my mic, and then bump, bump, bump. Scared me. So sorry about that. Uh, hey, so uh, to this week, we've been going through the life of David, and today we're looking at David as a parent. And and so I wanted to give you, um, if any of you are wondering, hey, this is going to hit home. I don't know how I am as a parent. I thought I'd pave the way by letting you know none of us are perfect, especially me. All right? So um, uh, several years ago, our our second Second son, our second child, oldest son, Isaiah, uh, he was first grade. He's an awesome kid. I love him. He is passionate. That's the best word I can use to describe him is passionate. Everything he does is passionate. When he was a little, when he would eat, it would be fast. When he'd sleep, he spins around. It's nuts. Like everything he does is with passion, with excitement, full throttle. Whether he's getting in trouble, it is with full force. Whether he's doing school, it is with all his might. And so that's an awesome thing. I truly believe that Sarah and I have been blessed that we get to see what each other was like as a child. Uh, My oldest daughter is peaceful, quiet, smiles all the time. That had to have been Sarah. Isaiah is driven by whatever's the most fun at the moment. That is me as a child. That is me today. Uh, This past week at staff meeting, for 10 minutes, the staff just lamented on what it's like working with me. And they're like, oh, you should have seen this time when we couldn't get his attention and we were trying to build a retaining wall and it almost fell over. And, and like, and they're just like, oh, you think that's bad? What I did this with Matt, and and I'm like, this is Isaiah, right? And so uh, he's driven by fun, he's driven by excitement, and it's a wonderful thing, but it's exhausting as a parent. And so about first grade, we're trying to do school, uh, we're trying to do church. It seems like he was getting in trouble every week at church. He's getting in trouble at school. Everywhere we turn, we're just exhausted, and and I didn't know what to do. I was at my inn. And Sarah was at her inn. We, we watched videos on parenting. We read books. We tried everything, talked to people. Finally, I thought, all right, military school it is. That's the answer, all right? And so you, you laugh. But I looked it up, and I know where the closest one is. I know how much it is. And then I realized, no, that's not very loving, and we can't afford it. And so we, military school is out. But I had the second best plan. So Sunday, he'd gotten in trouble at church, and we were just exhausted with it, and we're having lunch, and, and I told, I was talking to Sarah, and I said, you know, I got a letter from Roger, he's doing well, and then everyone said, the kids said, who's Roger? And so we have Abby, Isaiah, first grade, our, our youngest, Henry, he's two-ish, and, and uh, I say, Roger, well, you guys know Roger, and they're like, no, who's Roger? I said, Isaiah's twin brother. And they said, what? And I said, Isaiah has a twin brother. You guys know that. Uh, he's at military school. And, and they said, what? I said, he misbehaved really bad, and we had to send him away. And if you guys continue this behavior, Isaiah, you're going to get sent away too. You're going to be at the school with Roger. And he's like, I don't have a twin brother. I said, why do you have a bunk bed? Now, he does have a bunk bed. It just was coincidence. It was the bed that worked out well when we first got beds and we were at Ikea. But he didn't need to know that. And so I said, this is why you have a bunk bed. Roger used to sleep in that bunk bed with you. He's like, that's not true. And I said, you want to see a picture of him? And he goes, yes, prove it. So I pull up my phone, and I just find an old picture of our family. And I go, here you go. And he's like, that's me. I said, no, it's an identical twin. That's Roger. He said, no, it's not. Where am I? I said, you were taking a nap. This is Roger. He's like, he looks just like me. I said, that's what an identical twin is. 
this is Roger. I can tell. See how his hair is? And he had a different haircut at that time. And he's like, oh, okay. And so, and so Isaiah's still like, I don't think it's true. Yeah, I don't have an identical. And I said, you do. Trust me. And so uh, we're eating lunch. And I said, I got to go use the restroom real quick. And so I go and I text uh, a couple of people. I text my mother-in-law and I text Elliot. And I said, hey, I'm trying to teach Isaiah a lesson. Can you send me a text in a few minutes that says, hope you're all doing well. Give my best to the kids. And I listed them, including Roger. And they don't know what's going on, but they're just like, Elliot's like, sure, this seems wrong, but okay. And, and so I go back and I get it in my phone. I make it on loud and it bings. And I said, oh, I got a text from Elliot. And I read it. I said, hey, Corrells, hope you're doing well. Give my best to Abby, Isaiah, Roger, and Henry. And, and Isaiah goes, it doesn't say that. I said, it does. I told you. Elliot even knows about Roger. And I have him read it. And his eyes got huge at that point. Then grandma sends a text about Roger. And now he's convinced, right? And, I, and at, this, at the end of lunch, you know, to be a good parent and make it all right, I said, if you don't start behaving, you're going to be with Roger. And, and so um, that afternoon, he behaved really well, and finally guilt struck in, and he couldn't go to sleep. He was crying. And so uh, we finally confessed, and I told him, Roger's not real. And so to this day, we joke with him. He jokes with us about, and we're like, hey, you know, Roger's coming in for Christmas. One of you is going to have to leave. And, and so in case you are wondering if this message hits home too hard, that you're like, man, this thing about parenting's hard, and I'm not doing a great job. You probably haven't told your kid they have an identical twin that they're going to have to get sent off to boarding school with, all right? So it could be worse, all right? So I share that to say we're all in an equal setting, and we're about to look at David, and I'm sure none of us have been as bad as David. We look at the life of David, and David did many great things, but parenting and caring for his family was not one of them. And so we've been going through the life of David, and, and we would miss out a, on a giant section. Actually, 2 Samuel 13 through 18, if we didn't look at being a parent and look at this dysfunctional family that David has and look at the care that he has for them and, and, and the, or the lack of care, and what could we learn and draw from that? Sometimes our best lessons is from the mistakes of others. And, and so what can we learn from this? As a parent, uh, it, it's hard. Parenting is hard, and, and these days, as much as ever, with all the stress and the chaos that we have going on, uh, I, I, my heart goes out to each one of you as a parent. Parenting is one of those things that everyone is involved in, right? in some form or fashion. Either you've been parented, or you are a parent, or maybe you've done both. But this is something that we are all connected to in some way, that we'd all be able to learn from, from this example in, this, in these stories. So if you'll go with me, we're going to open, we're going to jump around a lot. You can start and we're going to get your finger in 2 Samuel starting in chapter 12. And then we're going to be skipping around a lot of verses up through eight, chapter 18. But we begin in chapter 12 going back before the parenting to last week's lesson. Elliot did a great job looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. And he looked at the sin that David committed with Bathsheba and then goes and has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. And so he does this, all these horrible things and this evil plot to be able to, to cover up David's mistakes. David sins. And he does all this and Nathan comes to him and, and Nathan calls him out on it. Nathan's the prophet, the, the country's prophet, the one that's speaking from God and to the people and God has spoken to him. And, and Nathan shares with him in verse 10, now... Therefore, the, because of David's sins, right? Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
So this is God calling David out. David's committed some horrible sins. He's put himself in a bad situation. He's killed a man. He's had an affair. He's done all these things. And Nathan's calling him out. God is calling him out through Nathan. It continues. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. This is a prophecy, this is a prediction that we will see in the next several chapters. We're not going to highlight, we're not going to stop on that part of the next chapters, but this truly does happen. This is called out. Absalom comes and takes over and takes David's wives and his concubines, and, and he makes love to them on the roof of the palace for all of Jerusalem to see. Exactly what Nathan predicted because of the sins of David. Because of the sins of the father, it often impacts the generations to come. And so we're going to see this completely dysfunctional family, and we're going to hit some of the highlights here. And some of these are because of the sin of David and Bathsheba, because of the example that he set. Some of these are for, because of the example he set over a long time. David was a good king, but he wasn't a good dad. David was a good leader of Israel, but he wasn't a good husband. And sometimes that might be true for us. We might be awesome at work, but at home, we're struggling. We're not the mom they need, or the father they need, or the spouse. Everyone else seems, sees us and thinks we're doing great, but at home, we're falling apart. We're rough on our kids, we're mean to our spouse. This is what David's story was. So everyone on the outside sees great King David, but on the inside, they just want a dad, and he's not there. And so we're going to see this home life fall apart. So if you're following along, skip to now, chapter 13, and we see that David had many wives, and these wives had many kids. We don't know all the wives, in fact. We don't know all the concubines. We don't know all the kids, that, the children that he had. But we are visited with some of the children here in the beginning of 13. Verse 1, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon was the son of one of David's wives. Tamar and Absalom were the children of another wife. So this is Amnon's half-sister. This isn't pure love. This is incestuous love. This is wrong, disgusting love. And he doesn't have a good example on what love is from a dad. I mean, think about it. The entire city knows about the sin dad committed. The entire city knows about the affair dad has. Everyone knows when dad brings in a new wife, a new concubine. Everyone knows when a new child is born to somebody else that's not part of this family. And dad is just barely seen. He's not really in their life. Amnon doesn't know how to treat a woman. He doesn't know how to have a genuine relationship. And so he builds this incestuous love, this passion for Tamar. It says that he loved her so much that he couldn't control himself. And so he creates this plot to trick her. And so he acts like he's sick and he invites her in and to take care of her. And when she comes to bring him food, he grabs her. And, and she tries to get away in verse thir chapter 13, verse 14. He says, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. This is all in David's home, in his palace, under his watchful eye. The half-siblings are doing this. 
And so after the sin is committed, as the guilt hits, as the dirtiness of the sin hits, he now turns that hatred that he has towards himself, towards Tamar, and says that he hated her more than he loved her. And he kicks her out. And so she leaves, she's embarrassed, disgraced, and she has nowhere else to turn but to her brother, Absalom. Verse 20 says, her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived with her brother at Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Verse 22, we skip 21, verse 22 says, After Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad, he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister. He tells her, you don't have to say anything. It's his way of saying, I got this. I'll protect you. I'm going to make things right. But verse 21, the verse we skipped, let me read that to you. It's short. It says, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Doesn't say when King David heard all this, he took care of it. Doesn't say when King David heard all this, he had Amnon brought in. It doesn't say he ran to Tamar to care for her, to love on her. Just say he was furious. But he doesn't do anything. This is the man that as a 13-year-old kid challenges the giant takes on enemies, takes on bears and lions in the, as a shepherd. And here he won't even protect his little girl. And you wonder why. Why was he so distant? And, and maybe it was because he, he was scared of dealing with the punishment. The punishment required that Amnon would be killed. Was he willing to do that to his son? Was he willing to address the hard circumstances? That his son needed discipline. And he would rather avoid it because of the uncomfortableness that discipline brings. Something that a lot of parents fall into. That we know we need to discipline our kids, but it's uncomfortable. And, and what, if we, what if they rebel against us? Or what if people judge us if we, if we, tell, if we correct them at the store? What if people are judging us? And, and so instead of, uh, instead of correcting our kids, instead of putting them in timeout, instead of taking them out to the car, we just let them misbehave. We give in to their desires and wishes. He just lets his son do these things to his daughter instead of sticking up for either one of them. And all the while, time passes. Since it's been two years that Absalom holds on to this grudge. For two years, I believe he's been plotting against his brother. For two years, the anger and hatred's been building up. And I also think for two years, he's been waiting for dad to do something about this. Dad, why don't you step in? Dad, this is you're my sister, your daughter. Are you going to do something about this King David? He sees him make decisions for the nation. He sees him go to war against other countries that, that are causing trouble for Israel. But what about the war inside our own palace? We're falling apart here, and Dad, you're nowhere to be found. And so after two years, Absalom makes this plot, this plan, that he's going to go and he's going to kill Amnon. And so he has this family outing to go share the sheep, and he invites everybody, Absalom does, including David. He goes to David and says, David, why don't you come with us? King David, Dad, come. Let's get away. Spend some time with us, Dad. And what does the king do? He blows him off. Tells him, oh, I can't go. I'm too busy. Work's really got to me. I'm, I'm bogged down with everything going on right now. I, I'm, I can't do that. Maybe next time. Maybe next weekend, buddy. M maybe we'll throw the ball tomorrow. 
I'm sorry, I got to work late. I'm not going to be able to make your game tonight. And so Absalom goes with the rest of the family, but not King David. And Absalom goes, and it works out great for him, because now he's alone with Amnon. And so he creates this plot, and he tells his, his, his uh, servants, he tells his men what to do. We jump up to 13, verse 28. Absalom ordered his men, listen. When Amnon is high in spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. I really like those code words, right? He wasn't sneaking anything by, right? Here's the code. Strike him down. All right. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given this order to you? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground, and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. So they're all in mourning. This isn't his plan. And I wonder if David along the way is wondering, this was destined to happen. This is what Nathan prophesied, the sword would be in my house. What a hard way to live, Right? That he's constantly holding on to the guilt, to the consequences of his sin. Wondering, what's the effect going to be? When's this going to kick in? And so he hears this and he rips his clothes and he mourns. And, and then word gets to him. It says, but Jonadab, son of Shema, David's brother, said, my Lord, should not, my Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. David's nephew knows Absalom's plan. Everybody knows the plan. It says that this has been his plan for two years. This has been going on in David's house and David is unaware. Maybe David is choosing to not know. Maybe David's just, and turning the blind line, maybe David's just uninvolved and doesn't care. But everybody knows this was going to happen. His nephew says, we've all known this for two years, and, and here it finally did. When the word gets to David, Absalom knows that everyone's going to find out, and David, his father, is going to find out, and Absalom doesn't know what to do. Should I go back to Jerusalem? Is David going to turn a blind eye like he did when Amnon did the same to my sister, or, or should I flee? Am I going to be killed? And so in, in an unknown which direction, he decides to flee, and he flees to, this, to the land of Geshur. His father, his mother's dad, or his mother's father, his grandfather is the king of Geshur. And so he goes and he hides out in grandpa's kingdom. And he's there. And everyone knows where he's at. And he's there for three years. And David never reaches out. And the text says that David missed him. The text says that David, David's heart cried out for him. But he never shares that with Absalom. I wonder if David wasn't partly thinking, I'm as much to blame for this as he is. I never did anything to, to protect my daughter. I never stepped in the past two years. I wasn't the dad that they needed. I was never a good example in Absalom's life or Amnon's life. And, and I wonder if during those three years he's been feeling guilty, he's been struggling with this himself, and, and he knows that I love Absalom and I wish he was back I wanted to tell him I'm sorry for the dad that I was. I'm sorry you were put in this situation and, and confront the actions he did, but he never does any of that. He doesn't reach out to him at all. 
Finally, after a series of events and, and people intervening on Absalom's case, Absalom gets to come back to the city of David, to Jerusalem. And Absalom's hoping that David's finally forgiven him. Absalom's hoping that David at least will talk to him. I don't know about you, but there's been those times where you know you've done something wrong and, and someone's just silent. They just won't even talk. And you just want them to just yell at me. That would be better than silence. Forgive me. That would be better than the cold shoulder. How are we going to move on from this? And David is withholding. Withholding any emotions, withholding any affections. <clears throat> He's withholding in this relationship. So Absalom comes back, hoping that he'll get to come, but David sends orders he cannot enter the gate of the palace. And so for two more years, Absalom's in Jerusalem, wanting to get to dad, wanting to make it right with daddy. And David will have no part of it. He just withholds the feelings. He withholds the affection. He withholds the relationship. So now for five years, David's held it back. As we're looking at these parenting things, I see this and I think, I, I, I hope and I pray that I don't ever do this towards my kids. That there's times I'm frustrated, there's times I'm disappointed, and, and the worst is at night when I'm trying to put them to bed and they do something and you're angry and, and you want to just walk away. But I always try to make sure to go back and just end with, I love you. Even if I'm angry, I want them to know their love is not based on their performance. David's love was based on Absalom's works. David's love was based on his, on his performance. And I'm so thankful, aren't you, that God doesn't see us that way. That every time we sin, God doesn't turn his love away from us. Give us the cold shoulder, turn his back, keep us out of the palace. Say that we are, have to stay out at the gate. God brings us in and has a love of grace. That every time we make a mistake, he still loves us. David holds this against him. He won't reach out to him. When we were in Taiwan, uh, we were working with college students, and the, and the kids came into my office one day, and, and I hugged them and kissed them and told them I love them, and, and Sarah and the kids went off. It was after lunch, and one of the girls came up, and she said, she's about 25, she said, do you tell them you love them every day? I said, yeah, multiple times, every time I see them. When I leave, I tell them I love them. When I come in, I tell them I love them. I said, is that not normal? in your family? And she said, I've only heard my dad tell me he loves me once. In 25 years. And tears started to well up. One time, 25 years, she's ever been told, I love you, by her dad. Absalom hasn't received that at least for five years. And so the, this bitterness, this this. This, this distance that David is building is now being built in his son, and his son is creating a plot against David. And so he stands at the gate, and where he was only permitted at first, he was wanting to get in, and then he realizes he'll never get in. And so he's trying to build a rapport with all the people of Jerusalem and the people that come into the temple, uh, to the palace. Absalom's there to greet him, to give him hugs, to welcome him, to see if he can help him in any way. And Absalom starts beginning to build this rapport with the people. And he begins to tell people, you know, the king has been failing in this area. You know, the king let you down here. You know, the king hasn't held up his honor, honor in this area. And, and he starts turning the people against him. And eventually there becomes this little civil war in Jerusalem. And, and Absalom grows an army and the, gets the people riled against him. And they go to take over the throne. And David flees. 
And it says uh, in chapter 15, Then David said to his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or, he'll move, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And so David is now fleeing again for his life, and Absalom is after him. After Absalom has built up this hatred toward his dad because his dad was never there for him. And so Absalom is pursuing him, and, and so David eventually, through the advice of others, decides to fight for his throne. And there's going to be this battle, and David sends word, no matter what, no one touches my son. No matter what, Absalom lives. And so there's this battle in the woods, and Absalom is riding on a horse, and there's a low-lying tree, and Absalom is going, and he has long flowing hair, which was a symbol of his pride, and this hair gets caught up in a tree, the horse continues on, and Absalom is hanging by his hair, and he can't get loose as David's soldiers, led by his general, come up. And even though David has given these orders, the general sees the enemy, and he, run, and he throws three javelins into the heart. Of Absalom. And Absalom hangs there in the tree, dead. This is David's dysfunctional family. The sword would not depart from David's house. That was the prophecy. Nathan's words would ring true. And I wonder how many times David was constantly thinking about his sin, constantly thinking about his consequence when he saw his family continue to fall apart. Instead of trying to fix it, he just was reminiscent to, well, this is what's going to be. I made this. There's nothing I can do to fix it. How many of us say, this is what we've been raised with. This is what I know. I'm gonna, this is the patterns that I've been taught. Instead of trying to change. Because remember, we've looked at this in several weeks back, but David received a blessing from God. He received the Davidic covenant, this promise from God that the Messiah would come through his line, that his reign, that his line would reign over Israel for all of time. There's this promise of what God has. And instead of tapping into God's promise, instead of tapping into this relationship, he would just content with this is what I am, this is who I'm going to be. Instead of trying to change with God's help. And so the word gets back to David. says, then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hands of all who rose up against you. And David's first question, the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that man. It's his way of saying he's dead. It says, then the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my Absalom, oh, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is broken. He knows part of this is his doing. He's broken by what he's done. What he's done as a parent, as a husband. While he's led the nation of Israel, he hasn't led his home. And as we read through the Bible, we often, we got to look at each chapter and think, why is this here? How does this point us towards God's bigger story, which is a story of salvation, story of redemption, story of Jesus? And as we look at this section, we can see some good advice on parenting. But first, we need to look and see the good news of Jesus Christ. King David was not perfect. He was not the perfect king, but Jesus is. And when, while Absalom was a murderer, a fornicator, an arsonist, 
There's a couple stories we skipped over, right? We, we skipped several things. Uh, there was no, but he's no different than you and I. He is a sinner, just like us. He rebelled against his father, just like we do. Rebel against our heavenly father. When we sin, when we do these things that are against God's plan, against what he tells us in the Bible, we're acting much like Absalom. We're turning away. And David withheld his love. But thankfully, God doesn't do that. When Absalom returned to his father in Jerusalem, he was coming back, hoping he'd have a relationship, and David withholds it. But that's not how God acts. Jesus tells a story about the father that when his son rebelled against him, and his son finally, after wasting all his money, comes back to his father, the, the prodigal son, the father picks up his robe and runs to him and embraces him. This is how our heavenly father behaves when we come to him. I'm so thankful he doesn't withhold his love. It's not based on our performance. It's based on his grace. He comes and loves us. He forgives us. And this forgiveness comes at a cost. When, Ab when David heard that Absalom had died, those words rang true. I wish I could have died. I wish it was me who died in his place. You know that's what God was thinking. When he sees our sins, when he sees our filth, when he sees the, the rebellion of mankind and our, and our punishment for our sin is death, is eternal separation from God, and he says, I need to die in their place. I'll send my son to die in their place. And Jesus comes down, and on the cross, he dies in our place, takes on the sins of the world, takes on the sins of you and me, and he dies. And he raises again, and he conquers that death. He conquers the sins. He conquers Satan. And because of that, we have the celebration and the rejoicing of salvation. This is the good news from this story. As you see David mourning, I wish I could have died in his place. Jesus did die in our place, even though we're the rebellious son. And if you don't already know that good news, I want to invite you to accept that, to accept Christ today. Come see us in the prayer room or meet us out in the fireside room after service and let us walk you through that because there is nothing greater that could come from this day than receiving Jesus Christ in your heart. And if you already have, we can take some tips on parenting. But David would not deal with the issue. He wouldn't deal with the issue of Amnon, but Christ always did. When Christ was presented with a conflict, when Christ was presented with sin, with, with a demon, with, a, with someone in need, Christ was, would attack it full throttle. He would be in its face and love that person through it. Let us do that in our homes. David withheld his love and his affection towards his children, and I'm so thankful Christ never does. Even if we rebel when we turn to him, he's there running to give us an embrace. To Israel, David was a king, but to Absalom, David was dad. That's all Absalom needed was a dad, and he wasn't there for him. I pray that we will be there for our kids. That we could be there in their good times and their bad. That we'd be there when they're frustrating us and when, they're, when we're rejoicing with them. That we'd be there to slow down. Like I said, I know it's a hard time to be a parent right now. There's so many pressures. There's so many uh, the polling, polling things. There, there's schedules. There's sports. There's work. There's school. There's everything that makes it a struggle to be a parent. 
There's pressures on us. There's pressures on our kids. There's temptations that have now entered the home like they never have in the past. And all the more reason for us to slow down and be involved in our kids' lives. I want to encourage each one of us, you and me included, not to send our kids away to military school, not to make up fake siblings, but to love them, to spend time with them, to hold them close, to do the things that Christ has taught us, that he does for us, to make our parenting not based on our children's performance, but based on our love, to based on grace, which I'm so thankful is how Jesus treats us. Let us treat our kids, our children like Christ treated us, not like David treated his.